Welcome to On Mike with me, Jordan Rich. Now, today's guest is a friend and a longtime colleague. People in New England know him quite well, and I would venture to say that people in many parts of the country know him as well. They hear his voice evenings over WBZ in Boston. He's Dan Ray, one of the country's top talk show hosts, with his show Nightside, heard weekday evenings on AM 1030. Dan was an Emmy Award-winning TV reporter for decades in Boston prior to coming back to radio. He's also an attorney. He's won numerous awards for his work on air and off and is very active in a number of charitable efforts. Nowadays, Dan loves talking about the issues that matter to people all over the country. Dan Ray, what a pleasure it is to uh, invite you onto my podcast. You're inviting people onto your show every night, so uh, turnabout is fair play. Nothing wrong with that. Hey, Jordan, it's so uh, great to hear from you. I don't see you as much as I used to, which makes me sad, but I hope that things are going well in your life. I'm sure they are, and please say hi to Roberto. Uh, indeed, indeed. Thank you, and best to your family as well. You know, there's so much to talk about. Let's finally settle on where you are right now, where you've been for many, many years, the host of Nightside, a very successful talk show, which is really heard in much of the country in the evening hours. Are you enjoying your run? It seems like you are. Well, we just started year 12, believe it or not. It almost seems like yesterday when we started back in 2007. As you know, I had finished a 31-year career in television, and the opportunity presented itself so sadly and tragically where David Brudnoy had passed, and then shortly thereafter, David's successor, Paul Sullivan, uh, got very sick. And uh, I, I felt, I felt to be really honest with you, Jordan, almost guilty uh, in in taking over for Paul. And as I'm sure we all remember, Paul passed in September of 2007 at such a young age. He he was 50 years of age. And uh, I felt that I had somehow benefited from, you know, the great tragedy that had struck his life and and struck um, his wife and his family's life. Uh, And so it it was, it took a while to kind of clear my head of that thought. And I still think of Paul literally every night. And I also think of David and I think of the fact that I'm sitting in this wonderful talk show chair from eight to midnight, Monday to Fridays on, you know, this iconic radio station, WBZ, even at a time when we see podcasts and things like you're doing uh, exploding across the the radio landscape, the idea of having a a friend on a radio uh, on a on a weekly basis or a nightly basis, I should say, uh, still means a lot to me. I guess I'm still old school, but you're kind of old school too. <laughs> well, I did it for decades myself, and I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Radio will never, ever go out of style because it has a function, a role, and the way it's delivered, particularly for those driving around, and they can certainly drive around and listen to a podcast, but there's nothing like live radio. And let's just go back a ways. And, you know, you had a 31-year career at WBZ-TV, an amazing run, and you're really, like me, a local yokel who made it in the same market you grew up in. Well, what, do, what do they say? A prophet's without honor in his own land. Well, a prophet, I'm, I'm without honor within my own family, okay? <laughs> but Because we don't talk politics around the dinner table at night or on, on Saturday and Sunday nights for two reasons. One, most of my family members disagree with, with most of the Understood. positions I might take. <laughs> uh, maybe there's a little generational divide there. Uh, and in addition, I get tired of it on weekends. Uh, it's, uh, on weekends, I want to be my own time. Uh, but I also realize, and I know you've told me about this, and that you realize this, that every time you go in the year, you know that there are people out there who are listening. And they're not just necessarily only in their car. I mean, there are people around the country that you and I can both name because we've almost become oh, friends yes. with them, or we yeah. have become friends with them 
over this radio relationship. I can talk about a variety of people, you know, Alana in uh, in Canada, uh, Richard in Canada, in, in Ontario, uh, Clark down in Philadelphia, uh, you know, on and on and on. I, I won't bore you with the, with the litany of names, but you had the same thing because I would listen to your show at night, and you always have new voices calling in, but you have the the backbone of the show are those familiar familiar names, people who you might actually physically know because you meet right, them on the streets right. of Boston, but people who you don't know and you only meet them over the over the airwaves, which is an amazing experience. And I feel sad I feel badly for people who've never had that experience. And you and I have been very fortunate to have that you you, you cannot modify unique. But it's <laughs> the most unique experience to think that there are people in halfway across the country who are turning on their radio to listen to your show or my show at, a, at an appointed hour when they have so many other entertainment options available to them. That still blows my mind to this Well, day. it's true. And, and I think for those who know anything about talk radio, the number of people who actually pick up the phone to call into a talk show is really quite small considering the size, the enormous size of the audience. It's really amazing the letters and cards. Well, I don't know if there are so many cards and letters, but you still get them. I, I used to get them. But the emails and the responses from people who never call in, it really has an impact on you to know that you've made their lives a little better, a little happier, or a little more informed. You know how I know, and, and I can actually prove this to people, and of course people will say, well, how can you prove this? We do occasionally. You have you had a wide variety of guests. My my spectrum of guests is is, is more narrow than yours. I what I loved about you is there was any topic in the world that Jordan Rich could talk about, and talk about with authority, and also ask questions, and it it ran the board. It ran across. And again, obviously, all the things you do. I try to run a talk show which is broad. It was never as broad as yours in terms of the spectrum of ideas and all of that. However. Every once in a while, I have a psychic medium on a Friday night for a couple of hours. Jordan, the phone lines light up, <laughs> and they are the. You watch. You, you know, we have four lines at WBZ, as you remember, as you know. Uh, and as soon as that that first line drops off, that that first line fills instantaneously, which means there are literally dozens, or if not hundreds, of people trying to get through. And the people who call the psychic medium. And we don't really advertise it much. We don't promote it much. Never hear from them except for that. They will be. You'll end up doing 22 calls within a two-hour period, and maybe one, maybe one of those callers you have heard from before. Right. Uh, on a political night or on a night more talking about topics or current events, you will have the sprinkling of the people who you hear from on a regular basis or somewhat right. regular right. basis. But that proves it to me that there are tens of thousands of people who are listening who will only pick up the phone or even try to pick up the phone if it's so so far off the beaten path like a psychic medium for me. It's true. And uh, we're talking with Dan Ray, who really does host what he calls America's Back Porch, the radio show on WBZ 1030 AM that is heard, whether it's on the internet, that's new school or old school on the old fashioned radios across the country and across the world, topics like that that are so human in their scope. I mean, they are all-inclusive, universal topics. I used to invite people to talk about their favorite breakfast cereal and the lines would blow up. I mean, it's just sure. yeah. it's just incredible. Let's talk a little bit about the tenor of the times. I mean, I'm not going to get into specifics here, but everyone's talking about uh, 
civility or lack thereof. I, I think you pride yourself on running a fair and reasonable show, allowing people their opinions, and you do uh, confront people, but in a civil way. Is that more difficult today with what's going on everywhere around us? Yes, it is. Um, when I started doing the talk show, I told Peter Casey, our, your old boss and my old boss, I said, look, what I want to do is I want to do a show that gives everybody an opportunity to have their say. We'll have conversation, and sometimes it'll be spirited conversation, but I want it to be like someone's back porch, so I call it North America's back porch. The idea that if you're in a neighborhood and uh, you're out on a, on a on a warm evening walking the dog or just walking around and you notice the light on the back porch uh, around uh, the back of the house, you take a walk up the driveway because you feel welcomed, you step up on the porch and you talk about whatever's going on. Now, obviously, most back porches, they'll be talking about the Red Sox or They'll be talking about the Patriots, or they'll be talking about sometimes politics. And I know that we're taught that in um, in, in proper company, you don't talk about politics or religion. Those are sort of the, the third rails that you're not supposed to talk about. Well, that's kind of the backbone of my show, meaning politics and current events, and not just electoral politics, but all politics. Uh, if whatever whatever is uh, is is currently uh, of interest to people, and you would do it. I think in your home community, in your neighborhood, you have to do it respectfully because you don't want to end up you know, becoming enemies with people who live down the street or up the street. So that's what we try to do. And as long as someone's willing to engage in a conversation, they probably get more time on my show as a caller than someone who calls up and agrees with me. It's more fun for me to talk sure. to somebody with whom I disagree about a different subject. And what's even more fun is when someone who you might have agreed with on other topics, on this topic this night, they disagree with you, and that person will call and say, normally I agree with you. However, on the question of the night, i got to disagree, and here's why. It, it's, it's what we'd like to consider to be good, challenging, thoughtful conversation. It's not NPR. It's not, it's not public broadcasting. We're not going to drone on for a long time, but we're going to have a three- or four-minute conversation. You make your points. I'll make my points, and let's move on to the next caller and see right. what they have to say. Well, and I think for many, many listeners, it's it's rather refreshing because bombarded by talking heads who never, ever cede any ground to the other side. And, you know, things have gotten kind of ugly in, in social media circles and on radio and TV everywhere. Congratulations for, for keeping the standards high. I want to go back to talk with you, and I'd like you to share the story with our audience here on the podcast about something you consider one of the most important things you accomplished in TV, and that is the Joe Salvati case. People should know, I said it in the introduction, that Dan, of course, is a trained attorney, but talk a little bit about that case and the impact of media that can work in someone's favor for a change. Well, it's, you, as you know, it was a complicated case. I've worked on it for 15 years of my career. Uh, I began in television in 1976. Uh, Joe Silvati had already spent eight years in prison for a, a crime that he had not committed. Uh, and in 1993, the dean of my law school, Ron Cass, um, uh, summoned me to the dean's office to meet with a lawyer by the name of Victor Garrow. And uh, they basically presented to me a situation where four men had been wrongfully and uh, intentionally uh, convicted by the FBI here in Boston for uh, crimes that they did not commit. Now, Three of the four were people who had organized crime connections. Joe Salvati was not connected in any way, shape, or form seriously with organized crime. So we set out in an effort to try to uh, clear his name. It took four years for me, along with Victor Garrow, his 
attorney. Uh, I was doing the work in the court of public opinion and basically developing new leads and new tips and new information, and Victor was doing the, the hard work in the courtroom. It took us four years to get Joe Salvati's life sentence commuted. It then took another four years for a federal grand jury to uncover uh, long-lost uh, FBI records. The FBI were really good record keepers, which proved that the FBI agents in Boston, as well as their boss, J. Edgar Hoover, in Washington, knew that they were convicting these men uh, intentionally and wrongfully on the uh, perjured testimony of a guy named Joe Barbosa. Barbosa became the first member of the Federal Witness Protection Program. In fact, while he was in that program, he killed a guy out in Santa Rosa, California, for which he stood trial in California. The FBI agents went from Boston to California to basically appear as character witnesses. Now, I've talked uh, subsequent years to the defense lawyers, to the prosecutors. They had never seen anything like it. Make a long story short, uh, four years to, to get the commutation, four years to get uh, the actual, again, our hands on the records that showed that they knew these guys were innocent. Uh, then most of the hard work in the court of public opinion had been done. We found witnesses who Barboza had confided in, people who didn't know one another, because of doing this on television. Uh, we were on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace, who was a great guy to work with. We were on the CBS Evening News. Uh, we had a woman in Arizona who had been the widow of the guy that Barboza killed in, uh, in Santa Rosa back in, in the late 1960s. She told us, because she watched the CBS Evening News, she called me that night and said, I can't believe this guy's still in jail and still in prison. Uh, Barboza told us that he framed him. He showed him. He, he showed us his press clippings. Crazy story ended up with a, um, a verdict in federal court for these four men. They served a total of 109 years for a crime they had nothing to do with, literally nothing to do with Jordan. You and I were as guilty of that crime, and the people who are listening to your podcast were as guilty of that yeah. crime yeah. Uh, as they were. Uh, they won $101 million. Two of them had died in jail. Two of them survived um, and were there the day the verdict mm. was announced by Judge Gertner. And that was they what, were, uh, 2007, Dan? 2007. It was my right. last day on television, as a matter of fact. It was timed so that I went to radio that night. I felt I couldn't top that. Uh, <laughs> and the men actually won all of the money. They got the money plus interest. So they got $116 million. Again, the two men who were still alive uh, at the, the, the estates, the families of the two who had died in jail, uh, they got $116 million, which there had been some, some interest and in, uh, added on because the government had appealed, appealed, appealed. And finally, Elena Kagan, who was then the Solicitor General, it was her last decision not to seek certiorari on the case, not to take the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. They would have lost the case at the mm. U.S. Supreme Court. The next week, Kagan was huh. nominated to become a it, justice on the Supreme Court. It truly is a historic event in this area and throughout the country, and you were such an integral part of that. And I know it's a very proud moment that had some justice to it. And speaking of people in high places of power, according to your bio, you've interviewed every president since Gerald Ford in terms of process. Do you get more nervous or more excited about interviewing somebody of that stature? Or what turns you on when you're interviewing somebody who might be sitting in the Oval Office, let's say? Well, uh, I've never physically interviewed anyone in the Oval Office. However, between uh, their campaign events or between um, uh, press conferences, you know, whether it was uh, like Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, 
George Bush one, George Bush three, Bill Clinton. Uh, I interviewed President Obama when he was um, a candidate in New Hampshire. So you get to interview these people sort of along the way uh, with um, with President Reagan. I interviewed him uh, on WBC radio. I had two long interviews with him before he came president, after he was um, the governor of California and in what was called the interregnum. So I had him on twice on BZ Radio on my, my Saturday night talk show. Um, and, uh, you know, George George Bush, uh, both, of, both of the Bushes, uh, every one of those, and Bill Clinton while he was president, but they were always at at events. I right, remember right. interviewing Jimmy Carter when he came to Clinton, Massachusetts for his first town meeting. Uh, I interviewed him outside the home of uh, Gunnar Thompson, where uh, President Carter, then the newly minted President Carter, uh, spent the evening. So you interview these people in different circumstances. Yeah. I have interviewed others in more uh, uh, vice presidents in more formal settings. You know what? You don't get nervous. They're just like you and me. Uh, they have a little more physical protection around them, but Secret Service and all of that. <laughs> but once you clear Secret Service, you're great. I remember interviewing. I just got to tell this one funny story, if you don't mind, um, sure. uh, interviewing Al Gore. Al Gore is the vice president of the United States. It's 1999, and um, I've set up for an interview with him in Newton, Massachusetts. He's running for president, but he's still the sitting vice president. So uh, I, our, our young daughter, Katie, at the time was seven years old. Going, She's going to be eight the next month. And um, our babysitter that day uh, had called in sick, so I had to bring Katie with me to the interview. But Katie was a very mature young little girl at the time. Uh, she's now a, at Harvard Business School in her second year uh, and is going to do great things in the world. But at the time, she was almost an eight-year-old. And as we met the vice president, uh, Gore showed this remarkable you know, sense of humanity and said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I want to meet this young lady. So he gets down into a catcher's crouch, yeah. looks her in the eyes, and in his most uh, deep, serious voice says Katie now she's just cleared secret service with me she seems she knows what's going on a lot of you know security Katie who's the mo who's the meanest boy in your classroom and I saw the look come across her face like my god this guy's gonna send these guys with the guns to go get yeah. this kid so she dummied up she said oh mr. vice president there's no no Katie there's always someone who's mean who would that be and then we laughed, uh, and she got the joke. Uh, and, and I said to Gore at the time, I said, you know, if you showed more of that personality publicly, you might do better politically, because he, of course, had the reputation of being kind of a stiff, stiff as a board candidate. Um, that's a, that's a great story. Moment, yeah. It reminds us again, and you said it, that all of these individuals are human beings first and foremost. And I think that's what makes your work so important because you're dealing, whether it's ordinary folk, and I include myself in there, or some world leader, you're dealing with human beings ultimately who might shield their feelings and emotions, but they do have them. And I think uh, one of the things that I sort of gleaned from all the work I did on the air was sort of a, a, sla a minister, I'll call myself a rabbi because, you know, I got to be in the right school, minister, rabbi, slash psychologist because you're really dealing with the human element every time you open up a conversation Dan no doubt about that and sometimes there are people who call the show who you can tell are troubled and those are the people you need to be very careful with um, because 
it's easy to make fun of someone who may sound a little addled, but um, you never know um, what impact a conversation that goes badly with someone who's dealing with an issue. I, I don't mind having a conversation go badly with someone who disagrees with me about a serious subject, but you have to be very careful when someone calls and you get a sense that that person, because there's, there's no screeners. I mean, we have telephone screeners, as you know, Jordan, but there's no psychologist who's sitting there in the booth and saying, well, I think this person that's calling now may have some issues that we need to be concerned about. Right, so right. you're meeting people for the first time, yeah. and sometimes they're angry, sometimes they're not angry, uh, but in some cases um, you can tell that there's a problem that they are they're they're willing to exhibit on the air. You can't take advantage of that problem. Well, I think what you'd have going for you is a sense of uh, empathy, understanding, knowledge, and sensitivity, which is rare in media these days because people say the darndest things, and and you never know who's going to be impacted by them, uh, positively or negatively, mostly negatively. But I credit you know you for doing what you do, and I think a lot of it has to do with how we are raised and the kind of culture we're in uh, now. One more question, because I know you're busy and prepping for the shows you do all the time. Is there a, a guest, if you could wave the magic wand, anybody in the world today that you'd love to have in the studio for an hour? It might be unlikely, but who would that be? Who would you love to sit down with? Uh, I guess it would be Putin, Vladimir Putin. Ooh, good choice. Um, that would be that would be a choice because uh, you know assuming that that we could get through the um, <laughs> through, through the problem the language issue um, uh, I, I I think he is as interesting a character right now as there is anywhere in the world um, and I understand I think when you when you talk to a guest you have to somehow put yourself in their position and um, Putin's not a good guy obviously everybody knows that but he's coming uh, at his set of circumstances uh, from a very defensive posture, obviously having lived and having lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he calls the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. I think it's, you know, uh, <laughs> there are many more tragedies in the 20th century that are worse than the collapse of the Soviet Union, as we as we all know from history. But I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was one of the great things of the 20th century. Agreed. Millions Agreed. and millions of people. Um, but from where he's sitting, I'm sure that, if, if, to again carry the metaphor on a little bit, he must feel the walls have, have closed in on him. The walls that fell have now literally closed in mm. on him. And it would be great to, to spend an hour with him and trying to make him understand better that even though the walls may have closed in upon him and reduced his power and the power of his his totalitarian government, it's actually better for the rest of the world. I love that choice. That is so uh, inspired because who gets a chance to talk to this guy, this image? But I, I think you'd be brilliant. And, uh, you know, you just have to know how to say thank you, spasibo. That's all. You know, you have to I, know I, I don't know. The only thing I know is Niet, and I think I'd probably hear a lot of Niet. <laughs> you'd, hear, <laughs> you'd hear a lot of Niet. Well, Dan, uh, the show is, is super successful, uh, and it's going well now in its 12th year. Nightside with Dan Ray on WBZ in Boston. Now with new owners. Uh, a brand new facility, and uh, you and I worked in the old place, and this is for locals now, on Soldiers Field Road for decades and decades. Kind of sad to see it go, but boy, what a beautiful new studio you have. Well, it is. Uh, every 
once every once in a while, but once a week I stop over there and have lunch in the cafeteria, so I keep in contact with some of yeah. my old con- my old friends at WPZ. That, that <laughs> I, people think I'm crazy, but it's right on the way to the new to the new building. We're we're now located in Medford, and uh, right. you know it's funny, Jordan. I just add one more thing. I spent 44 years and six months to the day in that building. I began as a law student. Uh, doing a Saturday night talk show in February of 1974, February 24th, and my final broadcast was August 24th, 2018, from wow. the same building. What Not a the run. same studio, but the same building. Pretty <laughs> close, though, pretty close uh, to the same. <laughs> An amazing uh, example of steadfastness and, and excellence and also a little bit of luck thrown in. A lot uh, of luck. Uh, indeed. A lot of luck. Dan, thank you for joining me. I hope to see you again soon. We don't see each other enough, but I certainly hear you, and I'm so proud of the work you're doing for for all of us. Well, I got to have you come over some night uh, and maybe uh, spend an hour in the studio with me in the new studio. Uh, I hope that I can convince you to do that because I know that there's a lot of my listeners uh, who would love to talk with you. Oh, I would, I would love that. I have not actually been in the talk studio in the new place. I've been in other studios, but I'll take you up on that. Dan Ray, thank you so much, and God bless. This is Jordan thanking you for listening to On Mike with Jordan Rich, available on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Android. Appreciate you subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing this podcast if you get a chance. On Mike is produced at Chark Productions in Boston. Until next time, be well so you can do good.